Hey, happy Mother's Day to all the moms out there. My name is Pastor Evan. Thank you so much for being with us today. Uh, we are continuing our series called Called Out One. Today we're going to talk about being a sexual counterculture. So when we look at the first century church, there are five distinguishing features that made this the first century church so attractive, one of which was that they were a sexual counterculture. So we're going to talk about that today, and I'm going to talk about sexuality kind of more in general, but next week we're going to talk about specifically gender identity as it relates to transgenderism, and we're going to talk and hit that topic kind of straightforward next week. So here's the deal, though. Transgenderism is a very, very big topic. I could speak on it all year, and we still would not cover it. So if you want to read more about it, learn more about it, there's a book called Embodied by Preston Sprinkle. It's on the table as you walk out. Grab that book. That's our gift to you. Feel free to read it. I will say the first four chapters will make you feel like your brain is going to explode. But it is important as we get to understand who people are and how Jesus loves them, it's important for us to understand kind of everything that's going on as best as we can. With that being said, speaking of gifts for you, we do have Bibles on the back table there, right by the offering box. If you would like one, we're going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, and it's on page 898. And we're going to be in 1 Corinthians 6 and 1 Corinthians 7. But when we talk about a sexual counterculture, we talk about the area of sexuality, the modern perspective is that Christianity is repressive or even evil for telling people what they should do with their bodies and in their bedrooms. So you might hear this in culture in general or on TV or on podcasts or on YouTube videos about Christianity being a repressive religion when it comes to the area of sexuality. And there's a great desire in our culture for sexual freedom, which is a good desire to be sexually free. However, the freedom we often are looking for comes with this false understanding that sexual fulfillment is ultimate fulfillment. Sexual fulfillment is the ultimate fulfillment. So if you want to be fulfilled in your life, you need to be sexually fulfilled. And if you're not getting that, or if somebody's standing in the way of that, they are repressive and evil, and Christianity in the Western culture is the pinnacle of that evil and that repression. And so, to achieve ultimate fulfillment in our culture, in our world, you need to be able to sleep with whoever you want, whenever you want, with however many people you want, and you'll be free. That's the narrative of our world. But I want you to see today, what I, what I hope for you today is that you realize that in Jesus, our sexuality is given greater freedom, greater purpose, and greater hope than what culture offers. Greater freedom, greater purpose, greater hope than what the culture has to offer. See, Christianity is not sex negative. In fact, Christianity is more sex positive than any other culture, any other organization in the entire history of the world is the most sex positive religion, is the most sex positive people, it's the most sex positive philosophy, faith, whatever you want to call it, than the culture is. 
And I think that's important for us to realize. It's often approached to like Christianity is this sex negative. We see sex as dirty and evil and ugly, and we want to kind of put it on the shelf, and we only talk about it every once in a while. It's like the Babe Ruth ball and Sandlot on the dad's shelf. And it's like, don't touch that ball. We only touch it if somebody hits, if Ham hits the last ball over the fence and we need one, right? Like that's, like we don't talk about, Christ, we, Christians don't talk about sex. We don't want to talk about it because it's dirty and we don't like it. But the, and that's what the world kind of paints us as. And truthfully, the church has kind of done that in years past, has said like sex is kind of this dirty thing. We don't really talk about it. We don't want our kids to know about it. We, best we can, we need to just kind of keep that on the shelf as best as possible. But what I want you to understand today is that Christianity has the best view of sex the best view of sexuality than anybody else. Jesus wants to give you greater freedom, greater purpose, and greater hope in the area of sexuality. So I'm going to talk about sex and freedom. I'm going to talk about sex and purpose and sex and hope today. So first, we're going to talk about sex and freedom. Let's pick up in verse 13 of chapter 6. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food. And God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. And God raised and will also raise the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Do you know, do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Sexual freedom is found by living within God's guardrails. Yesterday, my family and I, we got to drive up to the Poconos to spend some time with the, fa the family. We're driving up 490, uh, 476, the Northeast Extension. And as we're driving, we kind of noticed that Amanda gets a little bit freaked out because she was driving. She gets a little bit freaked out when we're, on, we're close to the wall, right? When the shoulders aren't there anymore and you're kind of close to the wall. And get a little freaked out. And we kind of start talking about that and realizing that actually the wall is the safest place you can be while you're driving up 476. The walls and the guardrails are the safest place for you to be. And when you drive up 476, you stay between the guardrails and you keep in line with traffic and there's freedom there. There's safety. There's health. It's going to be okay. But if all of a sudden we decided we're going to swerve off the side of the road, go over the guardrails and into the ditches on the side of the road, we would get hurt or worse, we would die. And so apparently what's happening in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, Paul is addressing some men in Corinth who basically said that Paul's statements on freedom means that we can sleep with whoever we want. Paul starts talking about freedom in Christ, and they thought that because of their freedom in Christ, they could have sex with anybody they wanted, especially prostitutes. And their justification is this, food is for the stomach and the stomach for food. What they're saying is, I can eat whatever I want now. 
Because God has got put a, the old, Jesus has fulfilled the old covenant, I can now eat whatever I want. So if I can eat whatever I want and do whatever with my body and eat whatever I want and put in my stomach whatever I want, I therefore can use my body however I want. And what they're saying is sex is appetite. Sex is my appetite. If I'm hungry, I go find something to eat. If I want to have sex, I go find somebody to have sex with. And Paul's saying that's an appalling application of what I said. I came to Corinth and I preached the gospel to you and I spoke to you about the freedom that you have in Jesus and you're applying it in this way? You're sleeping with prostitutes? He says, never, may it never be that you would apply it this way. This isn't the way of Jesus. You think you're living in freedom, but you're not. Freedom is found by living within God's guardrails. You can't all of a sudden swerve off the side of the road and drive into a ditch and say, I'm living the way God wants me to live. He says, when you have sex with a prostitute, you commit sexual immorality, which is the word porneia, which means sex outside of marriage between a man and a woman. It says when you have sex with a prostitute, you commit sexual immorality with her. And Paul says, go back to Genesis. Go back to Genesis chapter 2, 24. And he says in verse 16, for as it is written, the two will become one flesh. He says when you have sex with a prostitute, you're united with the prostitute. You are living outside of God's guardrails, which is sex within the covenant of marriage between a man and a woman. And when a husband and wife come together through sex, not only are they physically connected, they're also spiritually connected. And Paul's saying that you're taking that special connection that is meant for your wife and you're connecting instead joining with a prostitute. You're willingly binding yourself to her. This is meant for your wife, but you're giving it to someone else. And any other sexual experience outside of that bond between a husband and a wife is outside God's guardrails. See, Christianity has a high view of sex. It doesn't believe it should be shared with just anyone. It's so special that it's only supposed to be shared in one way, between a man and a woman in the covenant of marriage. That's how special it is. And it amazes me that culture makes it out that Christians are just saying that certain people groups particularly gay and lesbian persons, are the only ones who can't have sex. And it's not true. And it's not because we see sex as dirty. It's because we realize that God sees sex as precious, beautiful, as a gift that he says, experience it here and nowhere else. 
So Paul says, flee sexual immorality. It's this kind of this action, this active work. Keep doing it. Make this your job. Make this your work. Flee from it. Constantly be running from it. Get away from it. Every opportunity you get a chance to just run from it. So flee it in every other way except in the covenant of marriage between a man and a woman. Flee it in adultery, flee it in pornography, flee it in prostitution, pedophilia, heterosexual premarital sex, and same-sex sex. He's saying flee it, run from it, get out of there. Don't fall for it. Don't fall for it. God doesn't want you to live in bondage. He wants you to be free. And because he loves you, He wants you to be free. God does this because he loves us. And unless we see God as loving and wanting what's best for us, unless you see God as loving and wanting what's best for you, all you'll think is that he's keeping good things from you. Like God is just a terrible dad who keeps all the good things to himself. He's like eating all the ice cream out of the freezer and he's throwing carrots and broccoli to you. That's how we treat God. How dare you, God? Instead, God is more like the dad of a friend of a friend of mine who, when he was a teenager, decided to break into his dad's humidor and smoke his cigars. See, his dad told him they were off-limits. He said, son, these are off-limits. These are dads. They're not for you. Not because he wanted to keep good things from his son, but because he loved his son and he realized that if his son started smoking cigars as a teen, this mistake that he would make would have costly consequences. It's because he loves his son, he doesn't want him to experience this. But his son did anyway. So one day his dad and his mom go out, so he waits till his parents are gone. He goes into the human door, he finds a cigar, and he lights one up, and he begins smoking it. But then dad unexpectedly walks through the door and sees his son smoking one of his cigars. And like a good dad, he confronted his son and said, son, what are you doing? And his son was adamant, dad, I'm old enough. I can smoke cigars. I know it's best for my life, right? The best part of your life is when you were a teenager and you knew everything, right? That was the best part of your life. Ever since then, it's just been downhill. Dad, I can smoke. I'm old enough to do this, Dad. You can't take this from me. So his dad said, okay, finish the cigar. And his son smoked the cigar and spent the rest of the day with his head in a toilet. See, God doesn't want to keep good things from you but he knows there will be costly consequences if you have sex with whoever you want, whenever you want, with however many people you want. He knows there will be consequences for that. And I just want to ask you to think to yourself for a second, is it possible that God knows better than you? Like, is it? Just like, is it possible? Like, is it possible? Like, sometimes I think we're so individualistic that we think we know better than everybody else. Is it possible that maybe God knows better than you? And that he loves you 
And because he wants you to be free, he wants you to live within these guardrails. Isn't that possible? And sex and purpose. We look at verse 19 of chapter 6. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? Listen to this. You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. God created sex, Paul is saying, and he created it for a purpose. Paul is rejecting the ancient philosophy of Gnosticism, where the Gnosticism said that all that matters is the spiritual self. All that matters is your soul, and so what you do with your body doesn't matter, and that's seeped into Christianity as well, right? This idea that the best thing for all of us is just our spiritual selves, that's all that matters. So as long as our spiritual selves are good, one day God's going to take our spirits or our souls away to heaven one day. But God actually cares about what you do with your body. Your body actually matters to God. And Paul said it matters so much that Jesus paid for your body and for your soul. You're a whole person with his blood. And so you, Corinthians, Corinthian men, Corinthian husbands of all people, you're sleeping around prostitutes because you're saying it doesn't matter what I do with my body as long as my soul is good. And he's saying, you can't do that. You can't separate your body and your soul like that. That is Gnosticism. It's not Christianity. Like Jesus purchased you, and that included your body. So glorify God in your body. See, your body is part of God's redemptive plan for the world. One day Jesus will return, and God will resurrect everyone who's died. And those of us who are alive with them will all be given renewed bodies. Jesus is resurrected from the dead. And what happens? It's not, he's, a, he's not a ghost or a spirit that just kind of floats around and hovers above water, right? They can touch his what? His body. The body matters to the Bible. It matters what you do with it. And Paul's saying not only that, but your God actually lives within you. Your body's a temple of the Holy Spirit, and you're taking that temple, and you're sleeping with prostitutes. Don't you know? Don't you see how that's a problem? You're not your own. You've been bought by the precious blood of Christ and your temples of the Holy Spirit. So your body matters to God. You matter to God. Your soul matters to God, but your body also matters to God because it's going to be part of his redemption and his restoration of the entire world. If the body did not matter to God, he would toss it out. But he says, no matter how decrepit your body gets, no matter how much it starts failing you, no matter how you wake up now with like your knee is just in pain and you don't know why, not that, does that, that doesn't happen to anybody else but me, Right? No matter how that is, God's going to fix it one day. And sadly, for better or for worse, I'm going to look like this. Maybe with less gray hairs. Because God will take the gray hairs that I've gotten from my children and give me dark brown hair again. That's my hope. But besides that, God cares about your body. saying we find true fulfillment, true purpose in letting our bodies be used by God. Your body has a purpose, is to be used by God and bring him glory. And that, so that includes 
the fact that I have to submit my sexuality to God and let him use it for his purposes. But our culture does not see sex in that way, does it? Like our culture does not see it as a thing of like a freedom to make sure we abstain from all other sex outside of the covenant of marriage. Our culture does not see sex as having this greater purpose. Sex is almost something that you just kind of toss away and you get rid of. And there's really two kind of philosophies around sex in our world. One is the sex's appetite, which is what the Corinthians deal with. This might be called like the realist view. The realist view is that you do what you feel. And it's a narrative that's particularly in liberal cultures, in liberal settings, right? That, that in our culture, you feel sexually attracted to someone, you go have sex with them. You do what you feel. And then there's also the romantic view that love is necessary for sex. So you have the realist view and then you have the romantic view. And this is typically what happens in more conservative cultures, right? That the, the prerequisite, of, prerequisite of having sex with somebody is that you love them. And if you love them, you can now have sex with them. I think about the show, How I Met Your Mother, and they're sitting in a bar, which is kind of what they do throughout the show. And they're sitting in the bar, and they're talking about sex. And the one guy, Marshall, who's played by Jason Siegel, he says, I'm sorry, but I think the only reason to have sex with somebody is if you love them. And what happens at the rest of the table? They all laugh at him. They start mocking him, and they start writing a list of all the other reasons to have sex with somebody besides love. They see him as backwards and antiquated, and the setting is New York City, right? In liberal cultures, that's laughable. But the other way, the romantic way, that's not the way of Jesus either. It's not that we just have sex with whoever we feel like. It's not, love is not the prerequisite of ha for having sex. Both of those have major problems. See, if sex is something you do when you feel, you do what you feel, you actually need another person to feel that way too, right? And if you don't have that person, you become resentful for others, towards others for not giving that to you. Like, I feel like I want to have sex, but nobody wants to have sex with me. So I resent everybody because they don't want to have sex with me. And if they aren't giving it to you, there's a real danger that you'll try and take it instead. Or at least you'll just become extremely bitter. Like the worst case scenario is you go try to take sex from somebody else. The best scenario is that you become extremely bitter. Because no one wants to have sex with you. Why? Because they're keeping me from being fulfilled. Like, why would they keep that from me? I'm entitled to be fulfilled, and if sexual fulfillment's ultimate fulfillment, I need to get it and take it, or at least what the Corinthians are doing, paying for it. But if love is all that's necessary for sex, you'll have to maintain this emotional intensity that's just not sustainable. Like, if love is what is important for having sex with somebody, it's that romantic idea, then you want intensity. 
But that's just not going to be sustainable, right? Anybody who's ever been in any relationship ever can tell you that the feelings of romance dim and sometimes they're non-existent. So what then? You become exhausted trying to keep up the romance in hope that's reciprocated. You hope that, like, if I buy flowers and I date this woman and I take her out all the time and I treat her like a queen, she'll appreciate it and then she'll have sex with me. So you become exhausted. Like, do you know how hard it is to keep up that level of intensity? Women, no man can keep that level of intensity up. We can't. So what often happens is we become resentful when that level of intensity drops off and we become extremely exhausted. See, the problem with those, both those views is that they're based on this idea of it's all about how we feel. If I feel romantic towards someone, then I'll have sex with them. If I feel like I want to have sex with people, then I will go have sex with people. It's all located in how you feel. So when the feeling's gone, you bounce. Or they bounce. When the feeling goes away, they go away. And it's because we have this idea that we can give part of ourself to someone else and not all of ourselves. It's this idea that I can just section out my sexuality and I can give that to someone else but I have to give all of myself to the person, my whole life to them. See, sex is not an act of self-fulfillment, but an act of self-giving, which is why in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, which I didn't have us read, and we're not going to read, just trust my word for it, but go back later and read it. He says that it's a reminder that my body is my wife's. I give all of myself to her. So sex is not just about me being fulfilled, but it's about me offering myself to another to grow in intimacy with them. I remember one time I was doing leg presses when I used to work out. (laughs) And I would work out and I would do these leg presses and then all of a sudden somebody who knew what they were doing, they're like, hey, um, Evan? You're, you're doing those wrongs. You're doing, the, you're doing that wrong. And I've been doing it for weeks, right? And they were like, you actually been, you're actually doing that wrong. And I was like, is that why my knee sounds like Rice Krispies when you put milk in them? That crackling sound, is that why? They're like, yeah, that's, that's probably why. He's like, you're using this the wrong way. You're doing it the wrong way. See, the Bible says if you try to take sex out of context and try to do it any other way, you're using sex the wrong way for the wrong purpose, and you'll get hurt, or you'll live with regret, or you'll be disappointed, and you'll have nothing to keep any partner around. See, if I section out part of myself and I give that to the person only, but not my whole self, what's keeping that person around? Like, what happens if I end up in a wheelchair and I can't perform? What happens if I get old and sick and our sex life just plummets? Why would that person stay? Why would you stay? 
There's nothing keeping you around because I need commitment from another person to place all of my life in their hands. If I'm going to give all of myself to someone, I have to put myself in this vulnerable situation and give all of my life to them. And what's more vulnerable than being naked in front of another person? See, I can't be vulnerable, truly vulnerable with somebody if I'm unwilling to give all of myself to them. And because I've been bought with a price, I submit my sexuality to Christ, and he gives me this greater purpose, and I find ultimate fulfillment in giving God glory. But in our culture's belief that sexual fulfillment is ultimate fulfillment, we have a real problem on our hands. And we particularly have a real problem when it comes to chaste singles and children. Because chaste single men and women will always be seen as less than until they get sexually fulfilled. So if you're single, you're unmarried, you are in the culture's eyes less than everybody else until you get sexually fulfilled. And we have a real problem with children because children become distractions or obligations from our happiness. Because sexual fulfillment, what it's all about, how hard is it to be sexually fulfilled when you have a kid knocking on your door at 10 p.m.? You're never going to get that. They become this distraction, this obligation. So in our culture, there's no place for chaste singles, people who are trying to live a celibate life in faithfulness to God. See, our world can't comprehend that. Why would you do that? You are less than everybody else. While we are sexually fulfilled, you're a less than. And our children are things that we have to be ready for. Which, spoiler alert, you're never ready to have children. You really aren't. Every parent will tell you, you're not ready. You just kind of got to dive in. Because when we start to see children as these things that distract us or they're these obligations or these, these hurdles, and whenever I'm ready to have them, then I'll be ready to jump over those hurdles and deal with those distractions. But frankly, you're never going to be ready for them, and you're going to be distracted all the time once you have them. So we have to submit ourselves. Right? We have a real problem then in our culture with why we should even have children and why should anybody remain single and celibate. Why would they do that? But when I submit my sexuality to Jesus, not only does it give me greater freedom and purpose, but it also gives me greater hope. So when you look at 1 Corinthians 7, let's jump in at verse 29. This is what I mean, brothers. The appointed time has grown short. From now on, let those who have wives live as, they, as though they have none, and those who mourn as though they were not mourning, and those who rejoice as though they, they were not rejoicing, and those who buy as though they had no goods, and those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it, for the present form of this world is passing away. Jesus fills our sexuality with hope. Listen to that. He's saying the time is short. You're living between the times, Christian. Jesus has come and he's inaugurated the kingdom of God and it's already started. And one day he'll return and he'll bring it to completion. And because of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection in the past, you have hope in the present, he's saying. Rejoice. But rejoice as if you have nothing to rejoice for. 
Mourn as if you have nothing to mourn about. If you have a wife, he says earlier in chapter 7, don't leave her. If you don't have a wife, don't go look to get one. Why? Because you're living between the times. Your hope is in not being sexually fulfilled, but in Christ. And when we give all of ourself over to Christ, who's the ultimate lover who gave all of himself, his self, over to us, we can trust that he who bought us will use our sexuality for freedom and purpose and hope. And if we know that in the future our hope is in Jesus... We don't see sexual fulfillment as ultimate fulfillment. Our hope is not in whether or not we have sex before Jesus comes back. That's not my hope. That shouldn't be nobody's hope. I know as a teenager, if you're a Christian and grew up in youth group, that was your hope. I just want to have sex before Jesus comes back, right? But our hope is in the fact that Jesus one day will come back. That's our hope. So I use my sexuality for God's glory, which means it's not a given that every Christian must get married. It's not a given. In the church, singles are equal tos, not less thans. In fact, Paul actually says it'd be better if you were like me, if you were single like me, so you weren't distracted by worldly things, like buying flowers, you could give that money to missions. You won't go on dates or make sure your wife's happy. You'll be making sure all the time that God is happy, that you're serving the Lord. He's saying, I wish you were like that. He says, don't worry. It's not a command. It's just my opinion. But because he says that because singles aren't less than in the kingdom of God. They're not less than in the church. They are equal to. They are just as much as a gift as married couples and families. Stanley Hauerwas says that singleness is a better indication than marriage of the church's self-understanding. Singles understand what it's like to feel that tension all the time. They understand what it's like to serve the Lord and have no obligations but to serve him. Chase single men and women are a great gift to us because they remind us that our hope is not in a sexual partner or even children, but the Lord. See, our mission as the family of God, as the kingdom of God, as the church, is not to have more babies, but to make, have more conversions. That's our hope. Our hope is not in babies, it's in converting people and baptizing them and teaching them to obey all that Jesus has taught us. And so unlike all other religions, we don't count growth in Christianity by how many kids we have. Like when they say other religions like Islam is the fastest growing religion, all it means is they're having more babies than everybody else. But that's not a concern of ours because we want to convert and baptize people. It doesn't matter if they're all single. It doesn't matter. We count it by everyone who claims the name of Jesus. And our Christianity, only Christianity, gives singles that kind of hope. And I don't know if you've ever watched the show The Office, but you think about the dinner party episode, and this line has always stuck with me when it comes to children, right? Jan has just taken one of Michael's Dundies and threw it right at the, his plasma screen TV, his, like, 15-inch plasma, plasma screen TV, and she breaks it. And they have this huge argument about not having kids, and she says this line, like, I'm sorry. She says something to this effect, I'm sorry I don't want to bring kids into this mess-up world. 
I'm sorry I don't want to do that. The world is messed up. Why would I want to bring kids into it? But married Christians do want to bring kids into the world. Why? Why do you have kids? Because our children are reminders of the hope that Jesus fills our sexuality with. Our children are not the hope, but they're reminders of the hope we have in Jesus, that God has not abandoned the world. As messed up and as broken as the world is, we have kids to show the world and say to the world, God has not abandoned you. Our children are not the hope. First, that's a ton of pressure for them to live up to. And secondly, as I said before, why would they change the world? You haven't, right? So like, why would they do it? They're your kids. So stop putting pressure on them to change the world. Let them be kids for crying out loud. But they're reminders, they're a witness to the world. Hey, world, we know that you're not ready to have kids and you think the world is messed up and the birth rate drops and declines, but we're going to keep having kids because we want to remind you and show you God has not abandoned you, but he has hope for this world. And when we live that kind of life, when we live a life of sexuality, our sexuality and freedom and purpose and hope, we find great value in our sexuality. It's not something that's going to be discarded or it's not something that can be sectioned out, but it's something to be used for God's glory. And we don't just go outside of God's guardrails and resent his guardrails, but we see them as something that are good for us. And we don't wait to be married to be used by God. We start right wherever we are to be used by him. And we see children as signposts of the hope that we have in Jesus, that God, he has not abandoned this world. So my challenge to you is to flee sexual immorality everywhere you see it. Get out of there. If you're somebody who struggles with pornography, bounce today. Get out Get help. You need it. Surround yourself by people who will help you. Whatever it may be, flee it. Run from it. And I challenge all of you, no matter what your marital status is, to live in life, light of your purpose and the hope we have in Christ. Ask yourself, what's the best way for me to use my marital status or my sexuality to serve the Lord? Because that's the state, whatever state you're in right now is the state God wants to use for his glory. And as far as gifts, if you're single, we have a singleness seminar coming up. I invite you to be a part of that. It's going to be on Zoom on May 22nd. Be a part of that. It's in the weekly email. You get all the details on our website as well. And then children, realize this. There's always children in the family of God. If you never had children, you're not less than either. Because there's always children in the family of God. You can be single and be a mom. You can be single and be a dad to someone else. You can be a couple and be a mom and a dad to a kid. There's always children in the kingdom of God, whether they're 8 years old or 88 years old. Somebody needs that kind of love, that affection that only parents can give to their children. And fill this place with children as a sign of hope. Yes, biologically, that's a good idea. Keep having kids. Thank you very much. Natural church growth. I appreciate that. <laughs> but also, bring in children into God's family, whether they're 8 or 88, by inviting them and telling them the gospel and converting whole families to 
his family. And by doing so, we'll be a sexual counterculture. We'll be different. People will want to be a part of it. Singles will want to be here because they see that they're being loved. People will see singles are being loved. They're not less than, but equal to. People who don't have kids are loved, and, and they're investing into the children that are here. And the rest of us are living faithful lives to what God is asking us to do. That will be attractive to our world, and we will live our lives, our sexuality out with greater freedom and purpose and hope more than what the world offers. So let's pray. Look, if you're here, I want you to know that I feel this right now. The weight of some of you are carrying because of sexual sin. And I want to invite you to go before the Lord silently and just say, Lord, I'm sorry. Forgive me. Lord, where that has been thrown upon me and the pain that I carry and the, the hurt that I carry, relieve me of it. Free me of that anxiety and that pain. And help me to trust you. And Lord, for the rest of us who may not be feeling that right now, we, and carrying that right now, we do carry the burden of our own sins in this area. And we ask that you would forgive us. We ask that we'd be a sexual counterculture. That we'd be a place where singles feel like they're equal to, not less than. That children would be seen as signs of hope in what you feel and you love, how much you love this world, that married couples would flourish in this area of their life. And the rest, all of us would use whatever marital status we're in, whether we're single, whether we're married, whether we have kids or don't have kids, that we would say, hey, how can I be used for your mission? We pray all this. In Christ's name, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, down forever. Amen.